0: Good for my soul to worship with you all today. Uh, I wasn't here last week. I was traveling back from Uganda with a team. Um, we we're spending some time with our latest, newest missional partner, which uh, I'll tell you some of the story next week. But man, I tell you, the great I am is on the move in our world. Um, I do want to mention something about uh, LFS and just... Uh, the journey with that. We were not planning on partnering with them in this year's Christmas offering. And uh, Roland, who is in every way a blessing to our church, but one of the ways is he just is so uh, has so many relationships with people in our city who are doing incredible work. Uh, and he said, hey, there's something happening here uh, this fall, this next year, um, that I think our people would actually care about. Um, And we we know this is true. I can't prove it. I don't have a verse for you. But I think God is extra present in the hard stuff. um, Like we see him. Maybe that's the difference is we just see him a little bit better. Uh, And so pressing into some of these moments where you think about a family picked up and dropped in a new culture and just how traumatic that must be. God's people need to be present in that. And so just, uh, gosh, uh, Roland, what was it? A couple months ago, maybe a month ago that we said, let's do it. Let's add them to the thing. And so thank Thank you. So glad that you're here. We're excited to partner with you and uh, see what comes of that. Okay. It's November 14th, right? Uh, Let's do um, some public confession. I want to call out some sin. Uh, This is a safe place. You can be honest here. We've all made mistakes. Uh, I just want to ask a question, and I want you to fess up show of hands who has been sinning in this way. How many of you on November 14th have already listened to some Christmas music? Oh my gosh. (laughs) I had no idea the sin was so rampant. Um, Listen, we all know the Bible says don't listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving. It's in there. I'm positive. Trust me. I'm a senior pastor. I don't lie about stuff like that. It's in there. You guys need to repent. It is not time, right? This is a problem in our culture. We all have people who it's like, it's 100 days till Christmas. That's September, people. That's too soon. Start, stop the countdown. It's too soon for Christmas stuff, right? No, I have divided. <laughs> I have divided the room. I feel like I'm messing with some marriages here, um, right? Uh, Listen, if you're the sort of person who celebrates Christmas early, I am being playfully annoyed. Honestly, there's a part of me who's a little envious because I used to have that sort of hope and that joy that Christmas is coming. And I was so excited when I was a little kid. Now, uh, like it's just a contest between me and my wife to see how long I can put off getting the Christmas tree out of the basement. That's my only strategy with Christmas. Um, But if you are one of those who likes celebrating early, I want to say it's a good thing hold on to that hope. Don't let us cynics get you down. I also want to say you're going to really like Micah today because Micah is one of those people. He's actually going to start talking about Christmas morning a little early, like 700 years too early, right? And uh, much like you all who start listening to Christmas music in October, uh, like it's, it's probably a little annoying to the people he talked to Right? He's talking about the coming of the Messiah in a situation that is so dire and so discouraging to God's people, I bet they were frustrated with him a little bit. He's going to point to hope that is so far off, it's like, why are you even bringing it up, Micah? But I think we need to let him convince us that sometimes, no matter how hard it seems, we need to realize hope is coming. Last week, Susie started the book of Micah. We're in three weeks in the book of Micah. She talked about that moment that Micah's living in. It is a really hard moment. The northern kingdom was utterly destroyed by the Assyrian army. The southern kingdom is overrun, but barely survives. The people are full of grief, full of fear, full of anger, and they're wondering, how did this happen? Micah shows up and he lays the blame at the feet of power. It is the misuse of power by the leaders of the nation. He calls them out. They've been self-serving. They've used God's people for their own purposes. And he teaches us this really important truth. When there are distressed and suffering people, the cause always involves the misuse of power. We see this in every refugee crisis in the world. The misuse of power is what drives it. But then after that harsh critique of those in power, Micah is going to change gears. And we're going to be in chapter 5 today, so find your way there. Because after he critiques power critiques leadership, he's going to talk about the Messiah. And chapter 5 is entirely a prophecy about Jesus where he is talking about the leadership that God's people need, the leadership that the Messiah is going to give. Not the leaders they have, not the leaders that maybe they deserve, but the leaders that we actually need in Jesus Christ. And he describes Jesus in a way that uh, surprises me. It's it's like nothing else I've read about Jesus, and I've enjoyed studying it these last few weeks. So Micah chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 1, walk through this, and then talk about what it means for us. Christmas is on the way, Micah says. Here's how he says it. Micah 5.1, marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. So he's talking about the siege of Jerusalem. This actually happened. He lived through it. The Assyrians uh, laid siege to the city. Now, ultimately, they were able to be uh, turned away, but the country was devastated by the Assyrian army, so they were hit hard by the rod of Assyria. And in the end, they still had to pay tribute to Assyria and were uh, incredibly controlled by this superpower. Things were bad. So Micah says, verse 2, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites is quoted in the New Testament. We're going to actually look at it in a few weeks, uh, this prophecy. Micah's looking through the fog of war, the chaos of the time, and he says, In all of this chaos, I see a light. It's coming from Bethlehem. And he describes Jesus as his origins are from old. What that means is, like, we understand Christmas is the moment that Jesus was born, but it wasn't the moment he started existing. Like, he is God. He is eternal. He's existed from before the foundations of the earth. Uh, But uh, Christmas was the time that he put on flesh and kind of stepped into our reality as a little baby, right? Uh, But he, he has always been there from ancient times. Micah says, he is coming, but until he comes... Things are going to be very hard in Israel, and they were until she who is in labor bears a son. For 700 years, it was hard. But Micah wants him to know something is coming, something important is coming. And then he starts describing the nature of our Jesus, and it's a description unlike anything I've read. He starts with some things that sound familiar, but then it gets a little weird. Let's look at the familiar stuff first. Verse 4. He's talking about Jesus. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. That's beautiful, right? And it's, it's contrasting, right? He's talked about how bad the leadership of Israel was. Now he's talking about the amazing leadership of the coming Messiah. And he says this, that the effect of Jesus' leadership is our security. That's the impact of his leadership. He's not a leader who uses people. He is a leader who serves people in a way that makes them secure. That's the nature of his strength. It's this caretaking strength. And he calls him a shepherd. You're familiar with this. This is uh, commonly something that we used to refer to Jesus, the good shepherd. I used to work with a pastor who said, uh, we need to note Jesus is a shepherd, not a rancher. Um, He always said the difference is ranchers, they drive the cattle, right? So they're behind the cattle, pushing them where they want them to go. Shepherds, very different metaphor. Shepherds are among the sheep sheep listen to the shepherd's voice. The shepherd leads them out to green pastures from in front. That is the nature of Jesus' leadership. So part of what Micah is starting to do is to tell us the personality of this Messiah. And he's describing, do you know what it's going to feel like to be led by him? Like you're being shepherded? That's what it's going to feel like. Then he hits us with three things Jesus is going to do. This is where it gets a little weird. Um, Look at verse 5. He will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. We will raise against them seven shepherds, eight commanders, who will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrians when they invade our land and march across our borders. So the the Assyrians here are representative of a few things. First of all, they are representing actual Assyrians uh, because that was a thing, right? But they're also just kind of generally representing oppression in general. Like it is the powerful taking advantage of the weak. And what Micah's saying is when the Messiah shows up, oppression will be pushed back. Now, we know this is God's people. Like we look at this world, I'd say that's a work in progress, right? We still experience bad things. There's oppression on this planet, right? Jesus experienced a lot of oppression himself. So it's not that ultimately it happened when Jesus is here, but it's that the nature of the Messiah is to check oppression. And one day, ultimately, it says he will rule over oppression, meaning it'll stop because of Jesus. So that's the first effect of the leadership of this world, that oppression is checked. And I would suggest checked by God's people when we rise up and we say, hey, we're going to stand with the oppressed. Here's the second thing, verse 7. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples like the dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass which do not wait for anyone or depend on man. Isn't that beautiful? Like this is an effect that God has on us. He says that we, as God's people, will be like dew on the land. Like we will nourish and minister to all the peoples around us. So part of Jesus' effect on us is we experience security, we experience freedom from oppression, but then he transforms us to somehow be the sort of people that are a blessing and help others experience security and freedom from oppression. Do you remember when we started the Minor Prophet series, we looked at Jonah? This was a big issue in Jonah is God was saying, I have sent you, my people, to be a light to all of these nations around you, and you're not doing that. And they never really embraced that. Well, Micah's saying when the Messiah comes, it's going to change. He's going to make us, God's people, this nourishing due to everyone around us. Third thing he does. Look at eight. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes. No one can rescue. Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies, and all your foes will be destroyed. Well, that's violent, right? Right? Uh, mauls and mangles all the other nations. He describes us as a lion, God's people who are amongst flocks of sheep are destroying them. I'm I'm going to go out on an interpretive limb here and suggest that maybe that's a metaphor for something. Like Jesus is not actually saying we should maul and mangle all the people around us. Um, we have to understand with prophecy, that it's a lot of vivid imagery, but it's symbolic of something. And when you see lion, the image of a lion, especially in the Old Testament, it is always used as a symbol of strength. And I think that's how it's being used here. It's the strongest land animal Micah knew. And so what I really think he's saying here is that the effect of the Messiah, that first we're gonna be like the dew nourishing the people around us, but also we are going to be strong in comparison to the other peoples. So like we will walk among these other groups with a power that is unmistakable as God's people. That's what he's describing. We won't appear anemic, We won't appear fearful or confused, but we will have this unmatchable strength that reflects our Messiah. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean we'll be powerful in society, but it means we will have strength among the societies in which we find ourselves, if that makes sense. So the point is not what the lion does to the sheep, but the point is what the lion is relative to the sheep. He's not telling us to mangle and maul everyone. That's inconsistent with the teachings of Christ. He is telling us that eventually we will be strong in the same way the Messiah is strong, in the same way that Jesus is strong. Strength that reflects him is what he's talking about. This sacrificial love, this strength. You know, Jesus talks about these things like loving our enemies, turning the other cheek. Let me tell you the truth. Weak, fearful, anemic people do not have the power to love their enemies. You don't. It's only people with an inner strength that is unmatched that can love those who come against us. Like Jesus did. That's what Micah's talking about. Now, last thing. Micah describes when Jesus shows up, uh, like picture Christmas morning, everything that meant. Here's what Micah says it's about. Verse 10, in that day, declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. I'll destroy the cities of your land and tear down all your strongholds. I will destroy your witchcraft and you will no longer cast spells. I will destroy your idols and your sacred stones from among you. You will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will uproot from among you your Asherah poles when I demolish your cities. I'll take vengeance and anger and wrath on the nations that have not obeyed me. It's a lot of destruction, right? When Jesus shows up, I Like, the first verse kind of grabs my attention. I'm like, why are you destroying the horses? It's not the horse's fault. Uh, Again, it's prophecy. We have to look below the surface for the meaning in this vivid, vivid imagery. Here's what I want you to notice. Everything that Jesus is going to destroy, and there's a list, horses, chariots, cities, strongholds, witchcraft, idols everything that he is going to destroy are things that we as humans put hope in instead of God. And so what Micah's saying is this, when Jesus shows up, he is going to strip away from us all of those things that we put our hope in. And by the way, what do those things do when we put our hope in them, right? They disappoint us every single time. And so he says, All these things that you fix your hope in, that you turn to, is the strength and the security for you, and they never deliver. When Jesus shows up, he's going to destroy those things and tear them down. So, what do you call it when someone takes away something from you that's constantly letting you down? I, I would call that mercy. And I think as intense as this destruction is, I think it's actually a passage about God's aggressive mercy in our life. God has an assertive mercy. And Micah's saying, hey, these things that you keep hoping in that keep betraying you, one day the merciful Jesus will show up and just take them away because they weren't worthy of your hope anyway. What's hard about that is even if we're not ready, he's gonna take them away. Even if we want to hang on to him a little bit longer, I think Jesus looks at him and says, hey, I'm tired of seeing you betrayed by those things, so I'm going to tear them down so that you stop living betrayed, so that your hope could be fixed in me. And that's where this prophecy about the Messiah ends. It's kind of a weird description of Christmas morning, isn't it? Um, This is the effect that Christmas will have on each of us. I think there's a lot we can talk about, but I really want to focus in on those last few verses because I think it's time we talk a bit about idols. So idols have been the backdrop of everything the minor prophets have written. There's a lot of talk about idolatry. Um, And in Micah 5, Jesus, one of the things he's going to destroy is those idols. And, uh, you know, I think the other things are also things that we make idols out of. When we think about idols, I don't know what you think of. You know, it's the statues that people are worshiping. And and that's kind of true. But I, I want to give you a better definition of idolatry. I think idolatry is so much bigger than just worshiping a statue. Um, I would describe it this way, an idol is any good thing that we turn into a god, right? And we, we look back uh, with kind of this, our modern snobbery, looking back at those uh, ancient people's worshiping statues and how foolish and how stupid of them, but we have to understand the backdrop that led them to that sort of idol worship. Like, take an idol like Baal, Baal is a Canaanite fertility god, and it was, uh, the worship of Baal was centered around fertility, and so there was all sorts of awful, wicked, sinful things associated with the worship of Baal, but we also have to understand what would lead people to this sort of worship. Think about, like, infertility. Think about things like infant mortality. Think about the death of mothers in childbirth. Those were huge issues when Micah was alive, especially because the average age of the when girls were married and were getting pregnant was so low that pregnancy came with enormous complications, plus there was just not great medical understanding. And so we can dismiss Baal worship as like this stupid wickedness of God's people, or we can see that maybe there was a little bit more going on than just stupidity. These people were like us, Right? So statistically, if you and your spouse wanted to have a child, probably both of you had experienced a close friend or family member who died because they tried to have children. Right? That was the common experience of childbirth. And so you take that fear and our sin and our lack of understanding about basic medical care, you throw in our human hungers for love and for sex and for family and for all that stuff, and then somebody shows up and says, hey, there's a God who can help with all this. Hey, do you know why I have a healthy family? Because I worship this God who has helped me with all this. And here's how you get his favor. It's not that he is the statue, but if you have a statue, that's how you get him to pay attention to your situation. And if you honor this God in just the way that he asks you to honor him, then you'll get pregnant, the baby will be healthy, the mom will survive. That is the cocktail of sin and fear and love in which we humans start worshiping stone statues, right? It's a little bit more complex than just stupidity. We've never worshiped idols because we are stupid. We worship idols because we would rather not trust God, and we want to protect ourselves from bad things. That's why we worship them. Look at those two statements. Do you think in 2,700 years, either of those things have changed about us? Like if we crossed one of those off the list, where now we just really love trusting the invisible God, or now we just don't try to leverage our resources so that we can protect ourselves from bad things and experience good things. Now, I know we've all stopped worshiping statues. Um, Instead, what we do is we take something good like finances or work or romantic love, or children, or friendships, or politics, or entertainment. And we start trying to manipulate those things so that we feel less pain, we experience more goodness, and our idolatry is so sophisticated. It's like it's not even the same thing, but it is. That's why I think the way Micah ends this section is so incredibly important for us in our world, too, if we can see the connection. Micah describes Jesus showing up and destroying these things that we have put our hope in uh, that are not worthy of it. Our illusions of strength and security. Jesus tears them down so we can find real security in him. That is Micah's picture of Christmas morning. We finally find our security in him. Jesus' presence in our life tears down the idolatry in our hearts, the substitutes we've embraced. Micah, he's talking about horses, strongholds, actual idols. I think we need to pause and just have a second to think, what is it that we've embraced? What is it that Jesus needs to tear down in our world? I actually think this moment that we're all living in is a pretty good moment to do that. You know, we're 21 months into our first pandemic of our lifetime. Um, I don't know, this might be offensive. I don't mean it to be. I think COVID has kind of showed up like a minor prophet in our world. You know, the minor prophets, they would show up and basically they were a mirror. They would hold up a big mirror to God's people and they'd say, do you see where you guys have abandoned the dream of Almighty God for you? And man, if that's not what COVID has done, held up a mirror to, to highlight the cracks in our souls and in the soul of society, I don't know. I think COVID might be prophesying a little bit to us. Um, use a shallow example. Remember a few years ago when we were all like, man, Netflix is pretty great, right? Netflix is amazing. I wish I had more time. So many great Netflix shows I want to catch up with. Uh, uh, A few weeks ago I was scrolling for an hour on Netflix and I could find nothing that I wanted to watch. So at the start of COVID I'm like, man, finally I get some time to watch Netflix. 21 months later I'm like, I have watched everything worth watching on this stupid entertainment platform. I've even, I'll confess, I've watched a lot of stuff not worth watching. Like I'm like, this show is objectively the stupidest show I've ever seen, but I'm two episodes in, there's eight to go, I'm gonna finish it. And I look at that, and I'm like, how, how does something show up and take like the, the greatest entertainment platform the world has ever known and make it no longer entertaining? That's what COVID has done. But I also look at that and what it says about my heart, and maybe it's just me. Uh, maybe I'm alone in this, but COVID has revealed that maybe, maybe... Sometimes I use entertainment as a substitute for joy. Maybe sometimes I use entertainment to numb myself to certain feelings I don't like having. Like an idol. Am I the only one? Oh, it's just me. Okay, sorry. Um, You know what idols do in our life is they work just long enough for us to put our hope in them, and then they stop working and we're left worse off than before. An idol gives us just enough so that we chase it, but they never satisfy. I know Netflix is a pretty shallow example, but I bet whatever it is that is idolatry in your life, I bet it's not working like it used to. I bet it's not. You know, if success was your idol, man, I cannot think of a harder moment to get something done than what we've all been living through. If romantic love is your idol, you know what's really hard? Loving a struggling person. And you know what's true? We're all struggling right? And it's really hard loving a struggling person if you also are struggling. And so you see the cracks in relationships where we've idolized romantic love. If we've made an idol of our own freedom, I bet you're feeling more trapped and more controlled than ever before. If you've made an idol of your own security, this has been a season where it's been really tough to keep the fear out. Because COVID, the minor prophet, has showed up and he's revealing these idols for what they are. These shallow substitutes that we chase and we chase, but they never ultimately satisfy. In steps Micah, telling us about our Jesus, this good shepherd, the leader we need. Not the leader we have, not the leader we deserve. Jesus says, I'm going to just destroy some of that stuff if that's okay. You know? And I'm like, I don't know if it's okay. But he's like, no, listen, it's okay. I'm going to destroy it so that I can strengthen you like a lion, so that I can make you a gift, like the dew on the ground to everyone around you so that you can finally be secure. Can I just destroy that for you? Can I tear that down? So what I thought we'd do as we close is just consider Jesus has shown up in our life to love us, but also in his aggressive mercy to destroy those idols we fixed our hope on. What is Jesus uprooting in your life? What is he trying to tear down? What is the thing that his mercy is seeking to destroy in you? What's the idol? What's the misplaced hope? I know you know this. I can't tell you. I couldn't even guess. It's something that your heart knows, that God knows. I can not tell you this, whatever it is, he's not destroying it because he's mad at you. He is tearing it down because he's so tired of seeing us so disappointed all the time with shattered hope. He's more tired of it sometimes than we are. Sometimes we'd rather take another lap chasing success. It'll satisfy this time or chasing love. This'll be the one. Jesus is like, I'm just tired of seeing you throw away your hope on things that could never ultimately satisfy. I was joking at the beginning about confession and uh, acknowledging sin, but I actually think maybe that's the appropriate way to end today. <clears throat> confession is not about groveling before God. Confession is really about agreeing with God. And I think that's what Micah is pushing the people to see here, to see that maybe they need to see these things in their life from, the way, uh, from God's perspective. And so I think in this context, as we're thinking about idols in our life, it's just saying, yeah, God, I see. I put my hope in that thing again and again and again. I can't stop myself, but I see it, and I know it won't satisfy. And I repent, and I confess it. What are those things for you? I made a list. Here's my list. Uh, These are things that I struggle with putting my hope in and also see a lot of others struggle with fixing their hope in these. You will notice none of those are Jesus. None of those will make you secure. All of those are very tempting. My question for us is this. If Jesus shows up, Christmas morning, and says, you have wasted your hope on something that will not satisfy. It has become an idol in your life. It is this thing right here. What is he pointing at? What is he pointing at for you? You know, maybe it's something on this list. Maybe you're like, I don't even need to look at a list. I knew right away what it was. I knew right away what that thing was that is betraying me again and again. When you talk about this Jesus who wants me to be secure, that's what I actually want. Can we just have a moment of silent confession? Confession's just agreeing with him, returning to fix our hope on him. If he brings something to your attention, you just say, I see it, I confess it. I put my hope in you again, Lord. Jesus, we welcome you in our lives as a destroyer. We confess there's some idolatry in us that needs to be torn down so we receive it. We confess we've put our hope in things that are not worthy of our hope. We repent of that, God. We just turn from it. We'll we'll do it again. We know how broken we are, God. We'll make mistakes. But today in this moment, we confess it and we ask, would you free us from those false hopes? God, we stand before you as people totally free because every sin was nailed to that cross for us. We have no guilt and no shame. And even the idolatry in our life, God, was nailed to that cross. And so we're thankful for that freedom. We want to return to you and we want to fix our hope in the only place that will leave us secure. And so we do that now in Jesus' name, amen. We stand with me? I'm going to do the benediction, then we're going to close with some worship. That felt appropriate for today. Here's what Micah says to us. Christmas is coming. Christmas is here and Christmas is coming. And when Jesus gets here, he is going to save us from all of those things that we fix our hopes in that will always disappoint us. May you fix your hope in the only leader who leads you to security.